I want to preach on the reading from 1 John, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, about being children of God, and then the Gospel, which has uh, one of Luke's resurrection appearances. So we might want to talk about what that means and how we understand that. And so I'm going to juxtapose for you two quotes, one from what we might say a more advanced Biblical scholar, advanced is not a value-loaded term here, meaning better, but just advanced. And uh, one from Father Thomas Keating, which uh, connects, I think, to what I talk about all the time, and that is uh, how we appropriate the deep things of Christian faith and belief uh, and how that affects our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. But before that, every sermon during the great 50 days, I just remind us of the four things that animate us. The four things are really underneath the three great theological ideas, God's light, God's life, and God's love. So in one sense, the reading from 1 John today will talk a bit about uh, the first of the great themes of Easter, the presence of the light of Christ. The illuminative processes of God, both as an external showing the way, lighting the dark places for the community of faith, and for individual human beings who seek to uh, receive some clarity of thinking from God about God's purposes for them and how they can, in every age, renew their understanding of uh, who they are, what their purpose is, and uh, how they might proceed. And this light that is internal is, it has two parts in one sense. It shines on those aspects of our character that we should affirm and reflect back to the world the highest and best of our humanity. And also the light shines on those parts of our character that need work and illuminates perhaps with greater clarity how it is that we now can uh, begin to move in a direction of greater health and wholeness. And then, of course, we always read from the Bible, and we read about the great history of salvation, and we put two and two together, and we realize that what we read in the biblical text has some application to our own personal history, and we draw the conclusion that the history of salvation involves you and me, and that we're part of God's plan for the cosmos, and in fact, we are necessary for it, and the resurrection faith is about how you and I become empowered to be God's people in the world. Because what was done in Jesus Christ for the world was to allow us now to respond and to be the instruments of the restoration of the kingdom of God here. And also... We, re, we, we think about the template that we lay over our own uh, spiritual pilgrimage, which is the baptismal covenant. And finally, the Holy Eucharist, where week to week we're strengthened by the spiritual food and drink. And in fact, the collect that I sang earlier at the liturgy has to do uh, with Jesus being made known to us in the breaking of the bread. And uh, in the road to Emmaus story and in... Today's gospel, that issue of how that Eucharistic presence in some way illuminated the apostles and the disciples' understanding 
of who Jesus was and how important uh, that is. So, 1 John, a great reading. My favorite section is, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we shall be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves even as he is pure. Now, earlier in the reading, in fact, the opening sentence, it says, uh, we are God's children. Now, that is what we are. But there have been two interpretations of how we understand that in the history of Christianity. And uh, Episcopalians have been influenced by both of them. We might call this the Christian anthropology. What does it mean to be uh, a child of God? How do we understand it? Protestant Christianity would understand being a child of God as God's gift. So before that, you weren't. Then you become it. But another view would suggest this is who you are. You are made in God's image and likeness. Let's put it this way. In the Garden of Eden, the Reformed view would suggest that we blew it completely. There is no way back. We have completely blown it and severed our relationship with God and in fact are incapable in any way of knowing how to get back. It is only with God's free act through the sending of his son to die on the cross for us that this severed condition has been restored. The Christianity of the first four centuries that Episcopalians, Anglicans believe is definitive said what happened in the Garden of Eden at the fall, we always spell it with a capital F, the fall, was that human beings lost their supernatural endowment. And that meant that they were still capable of knowing the good and doing the good. So when I read this, I think it has something to do with who we are by default. And what I just read to you is an affirmation, however, that it is obscure. I don't know, have you ever gone through periods in your life where you didn't really know who you were? Or you weren't sure? Or how to proceed and what to do was somewhat confused? And then there was something that occurred where you were able now to see in a more fully formed sense God's purposes for you. The illuminative processes of God went to work. Maybe you didn't even connect that with God's work, but you got some clarity about how to be a better human being and what it was that you needed to do in order to make a difference in big and small ways in the world. And this could mean, uh, some would say in a self-centered sense, with you coming to terms with what your vocation was, is. How you're gonna, what are you going to do? What is it that you believe that you're called to do? And how can you do that with greater clarity of purpose uh, in your life? So when we speak about the obscure nature of God's self-disclosure at times, 
That is what this is about. You know, this is what the uh, resurrection appearances are about in the New Testament. People need to come to terms with them in one form or another. I have to tell you this. I'm, I'm somewhat conservative about these things. I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. And what is described in Luke's gospel is a true description of what the apostles saw and experienced. You know, a lot of people who are skeptical about this believe that uh, somehow um, history is not reliable in this case because it's a one-off deal. Right? History is about one-off deals. Caesar crossed the Rubicon once. A lot of history is about stuff that happened once. You know, I was, re- I was watching a YouTube lecture before Easter by some scholar, I can't remember what it was, and I somehow never, I did not know this. You know, when you talk about the biblical texts and all the manuscripts that we have and which ones are reliable and how many of them are there and people actually saying, well, you know, and these can't be too reliable. We only have about four of these. Do you know a lot of the, the great Greek philosophers and writers that we uh, understand to be foundational to our civilization, we have one manuscript, like Thucydides, one So to say somehow that we're not going to draw any conclusions from this because we have, shall we say, um, sparse textual evidence? How does it take away from the power and effect of what is said? So we always have to have that conversation. So in 1 John, he says the thing to do now, as you begin to come clear about God's purposes for you, is to uh, avoid sin. And you know what the author of John's gospel means when he, or the, of the first epistle of John means when he says sin? For the writer of 1 John, it does not mean moral lapse. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Sin as a moral lapse? That's what most of us think of sin, is, and it is. But for 1 John, it means unbelief. That his focus is on the overweening skepticism that I think in some cases in our age is perhaps unprecedented. Although since I haven't lived in every age, I can't say. Right? But the fact is, is that there's an awful lot of skepticism. And what we have is what G.K. Chesterton said so eloquently in the 20th century. When people stop believing in God, it doesn't mean they don't believe. It means they'll believe anything. And we do. You know? I hate to poll the number of people in this country who think we've been visited by space aliens. Right? But don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So John warns about that because that kind of skepticism is uh, perhaps not the best way to move in a direction of clarity.
In Luke's gospel today, it's very much like the reading we read last week. Jesus in John, Jesus appears, just appears to the disciples and the apostles, and they're dumbfounded. I was doing some reading about this. I didn't have a lot of time this week, but it, it, you know, one of the writers I was reading said uh, the fact that the resurrection appearances don't agree with one another is an affirmation of the historical veracity of what they're talking about. Because if it came so much later that the church had the opportunity to cook the evidence, the story would be completely consistent in every regard. So what we're reading about here is the the strands of the tradition that underlie the biblical text itself. So Jesus appears to the disciples, and they're astounded. And he tells them, don't don't be shocked, touch me, Um, it's me. But they still didn't fully recognize him. And so he now begins to explain to them the sacred literature of their people and how in it he opens the scriptures, how in it it predicts who he'll be, what he'll go through, and what the end result is going to be, his resurrected presence and to tell them that he is there to remind them that they are to now enlist both themselves and other people through the apostolic preaching in the bringing of the kingdom of God here. You know, so much of Christianity has been given over, certainly in the last uh, thousand years or more, to saying that what this is is that you and I are going to go somewhere else to the kingdom of God. You know? It creates some pastoral problems, doesn't it? Because we have friends and relatives and loved ones who've died. Well, where are they? Well, the safest thing to say is they're in heaven with God. Right? If you go look at the gravestones in some of the English churches that date from, say, um, the 16th through about the middle of the 18th century, you'll see written on the gravestones, David Brewer, gone but will return. And by the middle of the 18th century and moving to the 19th, it's David Brewer, gone home. Right? The resurrection faith means the communion of saints returning now to fulfill the purposes of God. Those of us who believe in the risen Christ have the responsibility to bring the values of the kingdom of God here now. And Jesus inaugurated this process with his rising again from the dead and his instructing of the disciples and the apostles in how to make that so. Our patron, Luke, is the great theologian of the church in the New Testament. It is his view that it is part of the plan of God that the church come into being. 
So we now have a purpose to bring the values of the kingdom to the world and to do that by being the best human beings that we can be. If you uh, have some skeptical questions about all of this, here's, here's one quotation from a, uh, a commentator on Luke's gospel named Bernard Brandon Scott. There is no biblical position on the resurrected body. There are differing positions. Perhaps that is where we should leave it. What the two extremes have in common is their attempts to affirm the reality of the resurrection. Both Paul, I didn't mention this, you know, Paul's writings are earlier than the Gospels. Paul doesn't speak at all about a physical resurrection. He talks about a spiritual resurrection. But he wasn't an eyewitness. And by the time we get to Luke, Paul and Luke would agree that it is not a ghost or a phantom. What both lack is anthropology to explain resurrection, so they operate within the anthropological models they have. We, too, are probably in the same situation with dealing with, with the mystery, although I would say this. There's been a lot of work done on the thought world of the first century in first century Palestine, and most people alive then knew that if you died, you stayed dead. That's not something we are sure about, and they weren't. Right? So to speak about this, in some cases, is absolutely stupendous. However, I would say Father Keating may uh, give us the better answer about what we do and how we think about this. The resurrection. And he's commenting now about the very gospel that Mother McNeil read to you. Like the disciples in today's gospel, we too have our own ideas of Jesus Christ, his message, and his church. We too are conditioned by our upbringing, early education, culture, and life experience. The disciples could not recognize Jesus as long as their mindsets about who he was and what he was to do were in place. When Jesus demolished their blindness with his explanation of the scriptures, their vision of him began to assume a more realistic tone. The price of recognizing Jesus is always the same. Our idea of him, of the church, or the spiritual journey of God himself has to be shattered. To see with the eyes of faith, we must be free of our culturally conditioned mindsets. When we let go of our private and limited vision, he who has been hidden from us by our prepackaged values and preconceived ideas causes the scales to fall from our eyes. He was there all the time. Now, at last, we perceive his presence. With the transformed vision of faith, we return to the humdrum routines and duties of daily life. But now we recognize God giving himself to us in everyone and in everything. So I guess those 
are the marching orders. Amen.